Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to Baldhead Bible Podcast, making the Bible come to life, featuring the expository story preaching of Dr. John Katzian. Who doesn't like to rest? We all like to rest. When you feel rested, or when you're enjoying your time and it's relaxing and you've got peace, you're sitting there in your bed eating your sandwich that's peaceful. You're sitting there in bed eating your sandwich while watching something on your laptop. Your favorite show, that's peace, that's rest. When all your homework's done, all your office job work is done, everybody's happy, your bank account is doing well, you've got rest. You've got peace. <sighs> well, after Gideon... The land of Israel never had peace or rest again. It says in Judges chapter 8 that during Gideon's reign, the land had rest, had peace for 40 years, rest. But that's the last time that is said in the book of Judges. From then on, it just seems to be chaos after chaos after chaos as we watch the spiraling, destructive nature of Israel get worse and worse. From then on, it seems like the cycle goes pretty much the people end in chaos, right? The book of Judges, the cycle of God trying to bring the people of Israel back to himself goes like this, right? The people of Israel pursue other gods. They choose other gods. They forget Yahweh and Yahweh says, I have got to bring you back to me for your own good. So he brings in another army from another country to oppress them, to hurt them, to cause them pain and suffering. Eventually they cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, please forgive us. Come back. Be our God and then he raises up a judge who then comes in the name of Yahweh and pushes out the invading force and yay the land has rest for 40 years 30 years depending on which judge and then when that judge dies the people of Israel start all over again and they pursue other gods and God raises up an oppressor to oppress them and then they cry out for help and then a judge comes up led by the Lord in the power of his spirit and they push out those oppressors and then the land has rest. Ah, Well, with Gideon, that last part, that's the last time it's said. From then on, the cycle seems to be the people pursue other gods, they choose other gods, and then Yahweh brings in an oppressor to oppress them, to bring them back to him. They cry out to the Lord for help, and then God raises up a judge to push out the Ammonites or to push out the Moabites and to push out the Philistines, whoever it is, but there's no rest. 
And I don't know if it's because the people never completely give their hearts to God and they keep pursuing their other gods and Yahweh says, I've got to keep punishing you. Or maybe it's just because he keeps sending oppressive tribes in each time to keep the people from pursuing other gods. All I know is there was no rest from this point on. And instead, it just seems chaos after chaos after chaos. Because after Gideon, who do we get? We get a man named Abimelech. And we heard his story last week, right? And Abimelech, he rose to power by killing 70 of Gideon's sons. Then a curse is put on him by one of Gideon's surviving sons, and then he's killed with a millstone thrown on his head, and it is bad. And then after Abimelech, it says in Judges chapter 10, there arose, I'm going to say a good judge, and his name is Tola. Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar. I love that name, son of Dodo. That's his grandfather's name. Hey, it's grandfather Dodo. I mean, that is a great name for a kid. I just think I would love it if my grandfather was named Dodo. But Tola is considered a minor judge because we don't know anything about him. That's all we know, that he was a judge and he ruled for 23 years. I shouldn't say he ruled. He judged Israel for 23 years. But it doesn't say the land had rest. And I wonder if he led his people, the people of Israel, in the battle against various tribes that were trying to invade. All the while, the people he was leading in the battle were pursuing other gods. I don't know. Because after he dies, another judge rises up, and his name is Jair. And he judged Israel for 22 years. Now, nothing bad is said of Tola, but Jair, it says he had 30 sons who rode 30 donkeys and they lived in 30 cities. Now, what this says about Jair is he had more than one wife, because it's really hard for one wife to produce 30 sons. He probably had a harem. He had multiple wives, which was breaking the Old Testament law. And then he sort of lorded it. Because back then, if you were a king, you had lots of power. And you conveyed that power by having lots of wives and lots of sons. Well, he had 30 sons who rode on 30 fancy donkeys. And they lived in 30 cities. The impression you get of Jair is he sort of lorded it over Israel. He acted like a king, though he wasn't. But either way... Jair, it doesn't say what he did. All it says is he judged for 22 years. But at the end of Tola's judgeship and at the end of Jair's judgeship, it doesn't say the land had rest. It doesn't say the land had peace. But what it does say is that the people of Israel continued to sin and do evil in the sight of the Lord. I mean, that's what it says right there in Judges chapter 10, verse 6, that the people did evil in the sight of the Lord. And what does that mean? That means the people of Israel pursued other gods that were not Yahweh. They went after other gods instead of serving the one true God, Yahweh. 
And that is one thing that we can say for certainty that the reason the land did not have rest and the reason all this bad stuff happened to Israel was because they chose other gods. And from this point on, we may not know what that unrest looked like, but for 23, 22 years, and here specifically in Judges chapter 10, verse 6, it is clear the people's heart is given to other gods. God's heart is broken. Yahweh is saying, you're my people. And here in Judges chapter 10, not only do we know that the people pursued other gods, but those other gods are listed. God shows that the people of Israel are pursuing seven other gods of seven other tribes. They're pursuing Baal, Ashtaroth, number two, the gods of Syria, number three, the gods of Sidon, number four, the gods of Moab, number five, the gods of the Ammonites, number six, and finally, the gods of the Philistines, number seven. And notice each god there is attached to another country, not Israel. And they did not serve Israel. Now it's interesting, they end this list of gods with the God of the Philistines. And the Philistines were a sea people, and, and the Philistines showed up on the west coast there, on the coast of the Mediterranean, and they showed up and they would invade Israel. And we're going to focus that part of the story later, but for now we're going to swing over to the eastern border of Israel where we're going to meet the Ammonites who have come in and the people of Israel are serving their God. So from the east coast to the west coast, the people of Israel, according to Judges chapter 10, are pursuing every other God but Yahweh. And it says there in Judges chapter 10, verse 6, they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. Now again, I don't know to what extent under the judges, judgeships of Tola and Jair, but I know at the beginning of Judges chapter 10, the seeds must have been sown because their hearts were given towards other gods completely. And it says the anger the Lord was kindled by the Lord against his people because he's like, I made a loving covenant with you. I'm supposed to be your groom. You're supposed to be my bride. And here you are pursuing other gods. You are breaking my heart. I have to bring you back to me. And so God sends, and here's the focus of the story, on the eastern border of Israel, he sends the Ammonites in. And this whole eastern border is called the Transjordan area because, you know, on the west coast, you've got the ocean. You know, it's, the, it's clear, the Mediterranean Ocean, that's where our border cuts off. But on the, on the east coast, you got, you know, these other tribes, the Moabites and the Edomites, they're bumping up. And so this whole Transjordan area, sometimes other tribes would raid in while the Ammonites said, we are sick of this. And God sends them in to punish his people. And for 18 years, the Ammonites, it says, crushed 
and oppressed the people of Israel. They crushed and oppressed the people of Israel, particularly who were east of the Jordan. We're talking about East Manasseh. We're talking about the tribe of Reuben. We're talking about the tribe of Gad. These people were oppressed. And then it says in Judges chapter 10 that the tribes of the Ammonites even began to cross the Jordan and they began to push into and oppress the people, the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin in the interior and even up into the hill country, the tribe of Ephraim. I mean, they are beginning to spread out. And here in Judges chapter 10, the Ammonites have pushed all the way up to the Jordan River. And they've taken over an area called Gilead, where again, the tribe of Reuben and East Manasseh and Gad, and they're all there and they're being oppressed. But it seems like now the Ammonites are gearing up for war to cross that Jordan River and to take it all over to totally invade Israel. So Israel shows up. The other tribes band together and they encamp just on the other side of the Jordan River near that Gilead region. And it seems like the people who were in Gilead, they're called in this chapter the Gileadites. And they're made up of the various tribes of Judah who lived in that region. And they joined the battle and they're all there ready to fight. The armies of Israel have met and they're camped and they are ready to take on the Ammonites when the men of Israel, and it says the, the Gileadites in particular, the inhabitants of Gilead, they look at each other and they're like, you know, hey, I'm glad we're here. Way to show up, Judah. Way to show up, Benjamin. Way to show up all the people who, who got out of the area of Gilead. We want our place back. Yes, we are here ready to fight. But chapter 10 ends with this question. Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? Basically, they're saying, hey, we're here, but who is going to be our commander? Who's going to lead us into battle? And they look at each other. I think somebody stands up on a rock and he looks at him and he says, I know just the man. And that man is... Jephthah. And they all look at each other. The men of Gilead, they're like, yes, you're right. Let's get Jephthah. Yes, where is he? Oh, 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 wait, 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 wait. We shoved him out of town. That's right, the people said. We pushed him out of town. We told him to get lost. Now, why would they do that? Well, the men of Gilead were all sons Gilead. They could trace their roots, who they were from Gilead. Well, so could Jephthah. But the problem was, all the other men of Gilead could trace their roots to Gilead through one of his wives. But not Jephthah. It says instead that Jephthah was half Jewish, half Canaanite. Why? Because his mother, it says, was a prostitute. And here, Gilead went outside of his marriage vows and had a child with a woman who was not his wife. And Jephthah was his son. Well, the 
lawful descendants of Gilead, they rejected Jephthah. And they just said, you know what? You're not one of us. You're not from one of his true wives. You get out of here. And they kicked Jephthah out. And it says there in Judges chapter 11, they told him, you will not have an inheritance in our father's house. Well, Jephthah fled. He lived in the land of Tob, or Tob, T-O-B. And it seems to be north of Gilead there, in northern Israel, is where he lived. And as he grew up, Jephthah became a mighty warrior. And I don't know how his fame spread. Maybe he went into battle against the Ammonites or the Moabites. Maybe he was in boxing matches at bars and pubs throughout the whole area of Tob, and people would come to watch him fight. I don't know, but his fame as a warrior began to spread, and he then began to gather, it says, worthless fellows around him. That's the phrase it uses there right in the Bible, worthless fellows. Now, it's not so much murderers or people who did horrible things. It's people who have, like, debts. They owe too much on their Discover card, and they can't pay it off. So instead of paying it, they run away, and they hang out with Jephthah. You know, instead of paying on their Ford F-150, they say, oh, I can't afford this, and they run off, and they... Hang out with Jephthah, and Jephthah begins to build this army all around him, but again, of people who aren't really making the best choices in life. But Jephthah is this mighty warrior, and his fame increases. Well, these men of Gilead, his brothers, his half-brothers who had kicked him out, are now in desperate need of his help. And they say, Jephthah, please come and lead our army into battle. Please, will you come lead us? So Jephthah comes over and he says, all right, I'll lead you. But listen, you hated me and you drove me out of my father's house. And now you come to say, hey, you lead us in the battle. You fight for us. You kick me out. But now you want me to do all the dirty work for you if. I come back and I fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them into my hand, I want you to know I will be your head. I'm going to be your leader. So that's my only requirement. If I'm going to be your commander, if we win, I'm going to be king of this whole region. I'm going to be chief. The men look at each other. They're desperate for help. 18 years of oppression, right? And they look at each other and they say, the Lord be a witness that yes, you can lead us. If you win, you can be our head. So Jephthah is now leading the army. And the first thing he does is he doesn't take him into violent conflict. No, instead, you know what? His first step as commander of the armies of Gilead, you know what his first step is? He's trying to find a non-military settlement. He, he basically goes to the king of the Ammonites and he tries to reason with them. He goes to the king of the Ammonites and he says, look, well, why do you have a war against us? Why do you want to go into battle against us? The king of the Ammonites was claiming that Israel had their land. 
and the Ammonites were coming to take it back. And Jephthah, with his first move, he tries to reason with them and say, Look, we have legal rights to this land. This is fair. This is our land. And he tries to remind the king of the Ammonites that since the Amorites conquered the Ammonites and took control of their land, when Israel defeated the Amorites in battle, they justly took control of that land. See, what happened was the Amorites conquered the Ammonites and took control of their land. This was years and years and years earlier. Well, when Israel came through under the leadership of Moses to take back the land, they took over and defeated the Amorites. And by extension, by defeating the Amorites, they took all their land. And all that land included the land that used to be owned by the Ammonites. Whew, I know it's confusing. But ultimately, Jephthah is saying, we have legal rights to this land that we established years ago by defeating people who defeated you. It's our land. Fair, square. Well, the king of the Ammonites, he's like, no way. We want our land back. So they drew their swords to battle. And Jephthah, before going into battle, he makes a vow to the Lord. He says, Lord, listen, will you please, please give us victory against the Ammonites. And it says the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Jephthah. You know, it's interesting. This is the first judge that was first picked by the people. And then that pick was solidified by the Spirit of the Lord coming upon him. Usually the Spirit of the Lord came upon the judge and raised him up first, and then the people followed. Here, instead, the people pick him, and that pick is solidified by the Spirit of the Lord coming upon Jephthah. Well, it says the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Jephthah, and he passes through Gilead and Manasseh, and he comes ready to fight. But on the way, he makes a vow to the Lord, and he says this, O Lord, O Yahweh, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. That sounds like a fair vow, right? Now, a couple things to think here. Number one, a burnt offering was an animal sacrifice. They would build an altar take an animal, slit its throat, and then burn it in its flesh, and the smoke would go up, and they offered it as a burnt offering. It was an animal sacrifice. But what an odd thing to say. Hey, whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me. Well, who is going to come out of the doors of your house to meet you when you come home? Your wife, your kids, your brother, your sister. You would expect a human being but if a burnt offering is an animal sacrifice, it seems that Jephthah was expecting an animal to come out. Now, I have a dog named Eddie, and he likes to greet me every time I open the door, but he doesn't come out every time. I don't think Jephthah's thinking, well, I've got this pet who always comes out the front door. I think what this shows us back then, it's interesting, they would have houses 
They would eat there and cook food there and sleep there. Well, at the back end of the house, they would dig downwards and they would create a shelter for their animals. And so they would have their animals out during the day, but then they would bring in their cow or they'd bring in their goat at night to protect them from wolves and to protect them from animals and to keep them warm. And maybe during the winter to provide some heat for the house. So at the back end of the house was what we would call a stable where they would keep animals and they would feed them there. And then during the day, they would let him out. And I think that's what Jephthah is thinking when he's coming home. He's thinking of his house with the stable at the back with all these animals inside. When that door is open, out will come animals. He's not thinking of his front door. He doesn't think that a human's coming out. He's thinking of animals. And he says, Lord, if you give the Ammonites into my hand, I will give the first thing that comes out of my house to you as a burnt offering. Now, that sounds nice, and his heart is turned towards God, but this is a rash vow. Because can he guarantee an animal is going to be the first thing coming out of his house? What if it's a human being? Is he going to offer a human being as a sacrifice to God? I mean, this was a dumb vow. Let's hope it's an animal that comes out of there. And then secondly, remember, he was half Jewish, half Canaanite, half Jewish, half pagan. And he had a lot of pagan influence from his mother's side, maybe even from his dad's side. And back then, people who pursued other gods who didn't know the Old Testament and the law, you tried to persuade your God to be on your side and you would give him things, even things like human sacrifice. Or you would give them goods and you would try your best to persuade the God to be for you. And I think that's what we see here. Is Jephthah trying to persuade God to do something for him. So he makes this rash vow to try to get God on his side. But that's not the way God works. Yahweh's different, right? He's always on the side of his people. And he's going to move sovereignly in our lives for our good, for our joy, because of who he is and his righteousness and perfection. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need your wealth. He doesn't need to be persuaded. He will do what he wants to do. A burnt offering is to praise him and to honor him, not to try to get him to do stuff for you. You know, I think we have to be careful in our prayers to, to not try to get stuff out of God. Hey, God, if you will do this for me, then I will do that. Because you got to be careful. If you make a vow, you say, God, if you do this, and then I will do that, and then God does it, does that mean you have to follow through on that vow? And if you don't, you're going to get in trouble? The Bible says, don't make your vows rashly. Follow through on what you promise. The Bible also says he is willing to forgive. And if you make a rash vow and if you made a rash promise that you couldn't keep, God understands your heart and you can choose to follow him and get your right relationship with him. But I would encourage you, don't use things to try to get stuff out of God. That is not the way God works. He wants you to bring your concerns. He wants you to bring your problems to the Lord and lay him at his feet and ask for help. But he also wants you to step back and say, Lord, ultimately, you do what is right. This is what I want, but you do what is right. 
Well, Jephthah, he's thinking like a pagan, and he's trying to get something out of God. And so he makes this vow. If you give the Ammonites into my hand, whatever comes out of the house, when I come back, I will give to you as a burnt offering. Well, he goes out to battle with the men of Gilead, with the army of Israel. And that doesn't say what happens. All it says is that Jephthah destroyed the Ammonites. He totally routes them. And it says they were subdued before the people of Israel. And that oppression, boom, is over. And yes, people are cheering. And this is great. And when Jephthah turns the corner and he's coming back to his house, he's expecting the door of the stable at the back of the house to be open. And all these animals to come running out. Yeah, this is great. But instead, the first person out of his house is his daughter playing a tambourine which is basically a percussion instrument you hit it against your hands and it's got little symbols on the side and a main area in the middle where you can hit it and it makes a thumping sound with jingling sounds and hey it's a tambourine and it's an instrument of praise and she comes out with tambourines and with dancing and she's the first one out of the house and Jephthah he falls to his knees and it says he tears his clothes in grief because he remembers his vow and his daughter is his only child. That's it. And she's the first one out of the house. And now he's supposed to offer her as a burnt sacrifice. What is he going to do? And I can imagine he stands up. And he hugs her and starts weeping and crying. And the daughter asks, what is wrong? And Jephthah says, I have opened my mouth to the Lord, for you have become great trouble for me. And he tells her all about his vow. Now, what would you do if you were in that position? Me, I'd say, all right, Dad, I'm out of here. See ya. That's ridiculous. I can't believe you made that vow. That is so dumb. I can't believe it. I am out of here. Instead, you know what his daughter does? She says, Dad, listen. You keep that vow. But just leave me for two months that I can wander around this mountain and weep and cry for the fact that I'll never be married. For the fact that I'll never have kids. Please, let me mourn for two months. Will you do that, Dad? And so Jephthah does. For two months, she wanders around with some of her friends weeping and wailing, mourning the fact that she'll never be married and that she'll never have kids. And at the end of the two months, she returns to her father and all it says there is it says, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? Some people think what that means is Jephthah took her and killed her and offered her as a sacrifice to Yahweh. Now, the only argument in favor of that is the fact that in Judges, they are so far removed from the Old Testament law. They don't understand. They don't have the Old Testament law in their heart. 
And it's clear in the Old Testament that child sacrifice is a sin. In the book of Exodus, the book of Deuteronomy, it is repeated. You don't do child sacrifice. This is a sin. According to Old Testament law, it's a sin. But the people of Judges, their theology and understanding of Yahweh is so wonky and messed up. Some people believe that Jephthah could have done this. But it also says in the Old Testament law that if you make a rash vow, if you make a vow that you cannot keep, you can offer money instead. You can offer a substitute that would take its place. And many other commentators, and this is where I land, I I think what happened here is when Jephthah saw that his daughter came out, he realized, I can't kill her. But you know what? I can give her to the temple and I can give her to the perpetual service of the Lord, which means she will be sacrificed to the temple. She'll never be able to leave it. She'll never have any children of her own. She'll serve the Lord continually. And I think that ties into the fact that for two months, if if I knew at the end of two months that I could be killed by my dad, that I could be sacrificed It says there, she mourned the fact that she wasn't going to be married. She mourned, it says literally, her virginity, the fact that she would never have kids. She mourned for two months. Do you think that is what you would mourn for two months if you thought you had the chance of being killed? No, I think it was clear that her dad was going to give her to the temple and that she was going to become completely given over to the service of the Lord, which is great on one hand, But on the other hand, she probably had desires for a husband, for children, for a family. And Jephthah, this was his only child, and he has no future now. He won't produce heirs now. What a rash and stupid vow. And it says that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, And for four days out of the year, they go there and they wander that same region, wailing and crying and lamenting what happened to the daughter of Jephthah because of her dad's stupid, rash vow. So at the end of the story, Jephthah defeated the Ammonites. Yes! But he caused his daughter to never have the chance to be married and to ever have kids. And now she's in perpetual service to the Lord at the temple. But it's not something she wanted. It's not even something that Jephthah wanted. And it's not something that he had to give to God. But because of his messed up ideas and his messed up thinking, his child had to pay the price. Now remember I said at the beginning that after Gideon passed away, or after his judgeship, the land never had rest or peace again. And I think it's because of stuff like this. God raises up men to defeat these armies. But then they do stupid things and they bring in bad thinking and pagan idolatry and, and what should be right and pure and honest turns twisted and messed up. And yes, we won on one hand, but then we shoot ourselves in the foot in the other and it's this constant, not peaceful, not working out. And they're led by men whose heart is not with God and Jephthah. 
his heart is with God partially, but he's got some problems. And you know what those problems are? Well, one of his problems is making rash vows. But you know what his other problem is? Well, if you come back next week, we're going to find out exactly how Jephthah continues to do right, but then just fail miserably. And I just want to encourage us as a people. We have the Bible, right? We have our local church, and I pray we dive into that Bible study with our local church believers, with the community of believers around us, and we try to understand what the Bible says. I hope we are not like the people of Judges who do what is right in their own eyes. And in the end, because of that attitude, because of that approach, they never have peace. Thank you for listening to Baldhead Bible Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. You can comment on our Facebook page or email us at baldheadbible at gmail.com. If you would like to support this podcast, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash baldheadbible. Baldhead Bible Podcast, making the Bible come to life. New episodes added every week.